of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, February the 17th, 2023. This is episode 3,251 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, a quick, right out of the gate, expert counsel show and what have you, and we'll talk about what we're going to talk about in a second. I just want to let you know We've had some slow responses on the TSPC server. And my web dude, Tom, is working with our host provider. Our, really, it's not a host. It's a co-location provider. We own our own server to rectify that. We are better than we were yesterday. But we still have some slow loading right now. It's like images are slow loading, but everything else is working really well, which is crazy. You know, People are downloading the audio files now with no trouble. Uh, but yet images on the site load slowly until they're cached. Once they're cached, it looks like there's no problem. So we're working through that. We are aware of it. If you're listening to this show, it is proof that we are still on the air because this one is not live. It is Memorex, if you're old enough to remember that. The Friday Expert Council shows, given the way that they're done, I don't do live video for them. I've thought about doing it, but it would make my easiest show of the week my most difficult one, so I'm probably going to stick to audio only for these for quite a while. Though I am thinking about, and I think this would be a really cool thing, getting like four or five expert panel members and doing a live Q&A with them as an expert panel live show once, maybe once every two months or something. If you'd be interested in that, uh, if there's enough interest, I'll consider doing it, because it takes a lot of coordination to get that many people together at the same time and place on a Friday early. So, we'll see. But I think I could arrange it if the interest is there. If the interest is like five people out of an audience this big, then that's not enough interest. So, without your emails, it will never, ever, ever likely anyway happen. Alright, so with that, what are we going to talk about today? Well, i got a great lineup for you. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we'll t we're going to talk about something that Dr. Paul said. Um, the U.S. should learn from the Soviets when it comes to compulsive lying. Uh, I'll let Dr. Paul speak for himself. My follow-up on that is going to be about something that Vladimir Putin recently said. And, of course, when you say anything he says is right, you're a total Putin! Uh, but sometimes people are right even if you don't like them. Especially when it comes to, like, global politics, you know? And sometimes when you hear about yourself, you don't want to hear that maybe you're the baddies or at least incompetent in what you're doing. Dan McAdams will talk about how the warmongers need to cool down. Uh, the NSC says the balloons that they've been shooting down ain't from China. Maybe that first one was, but the rest of them are kind of like ours or private entities or something like that. And we're shooting shit down without knowing what it is. And Chris Rossini will talk about something that I basically have built this whole show on. Get used to having to defeat bad ideas over and over and over again. Then John Pugliano, I usually leave him later in the show. I thought, let's move him up in the, in the, uh, in the order here. He's going to talk about 529 plans, money market funds, and more. Sean Mills will talk about using solar power to pump water over half a mile. I have thoughts on that because it's Sean. Uh, you know, most of my experts have been with me a while. I don't necessarily pre-screen everything, so I will be listening to this one as I put the show together. I don't know what he's going to say. I have a feeling. I know what he's going to say, because I know what I would do. Let's see if I'm right. Nick Ferguson will talk about the best methods for invasive brush management on remote property. 
Doc Bones will talk about the ins and outs of Listeria food contamination. We live in a country where we think we don't have to worry about food contamination, but it turns out we kind of do. Uh, another uh, little hat tip there for growing and producing your own food and buying locally. Amy Dingman, great subject from Amy at A Farmer's Kind of Life today. Working with teens when it comes to goal setting. I'm going to take this advice myself and start applying it, whether he wants to do it or not, to my grandson, whose goal seems to be to avoid work. In fact, recently, one of his chores, his goal seemed to be to get fired. I thusly informed him that if he got, if he got fired from the job that he's doing right now, he would still have the job, just not the paycheck to go with it. Little Jackism, parenting or grandparenting advice there, and then what is and isn't realistic with remote land development in rugged environments. That will be my segment today. You're like Jack. That sounds familiar. That sounds like something you said you were going to talk about on a show about a week ago, and then you missed it and you didn't do it. Or at the beginning of the week, or somewhere in there. Yeah, it's true. Uh, there were two subjects that got left out of a listener feedback show on Monday. And I did that because I've been just scrambling. I've been a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest the last two weeks. Between getting ready to do that seminar that I did yesterday, it was a podcast, but it was really a seminar uh, on biochar and all the things I did the week before, which you don't need to hear about. But say it was a busy, it was a busy week for me, and busy for me is really busy. You sometimes miss a step or two, and I apologize for that. So I'm going to talk about this one, and the other one I missed, that'll probably be on Monday with a feedback show, because I, I hate when I do that, but it does occasionally happen. With that, let's go ahead and dive. Well, no, let's hear from our sponsors of the day, right? I almost See, I almost did it again. Talking about messing up makes you mess up. Anyway, from Paul Wheaton, I really want you to, if you have not done so yet, Check out Alan Booker's amazing plant genetics seminar. You can find a link in the show notes today. There's a write-up on the website. If you get the Daily Mail, you've seen it come to you many times. It's ten freaking dollars, people, to learn from a guy who's like PhD level beyond in plant genetics how to actually save seed on your property, but do it in a way where you build honey badger seeds. I've been gardening one way or another since I was about eight years old. I've been teaching permaculture for 15 years. I have been a serious homesteader and growing my own food for about 25 years now. In two hours, I learned more about this subject than I learned the entirety of that 25 years. See, I learned more in that time, in that two-hour seminar from Alan, than I've learned since I was an eight-year-old kid saving seed from my grandfather with his tomatoes. And so many things clicked and made sense. And you know all that stuff I've been talking about with biochar? There's such a way these two link. I'm trying to get the big Yeti, Paul Wheaton himself, to understand that. But he seems to be a little bit anti-biochar. We'll see when he figures out that biochar is the best way to move living organisms from one landscape to another. Maybe it'll sink into the giant Yeti head. Maybe it'll put the pie down long enough to figure it out. But Paul puts great stuff together, and this seminar is the biggest bang for the buck I've ever seen at 10 bucks. Period. So you should check it out. Next up, you know what another big bang for the buck would be? Going out and meeting a lot of other like-minded people. The Self-Reliance Festival going on in Camden, Tennessee in March. You want to know more about this, just go to today's show notes, click the link. You can read everything about it. But there's going to be great folks there speaking, great hands-on demonstrations. Last time I was there, I don't know if they'll have it this time, they had a really cool bandsaw mill. Blew me away. Joel Riles is going to be there doing live demonstrations of his protection dogs. Tons of other stuff. Check it out. Nicole Sauce is running this. Just come to the show notes. Click the link. 
Or check the Daily Mail if you're getting that. If you're not getting the Daily Mail, what is wrong? Why not? I don't spam. I never share your information. Go to the website, click on subscribe, fill out a form, name and email address. Put a fake name in there if you want to. And once a day you'll get an email with all the stuff going on. With that, let's go on and plow on into it, guys. Dr. Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini in that order. But I think the emphasis lately has been, you know, uh, uh, more concerned about how many lies do the government tell us. And uh, so many of us now has come to the conclusion they don't tell the truth very often, you know. So you have to be skeptical. I heard, read the other day or something where the, uh, the Russian people the Soviets, in the Soviet system never believed anything the government told. Because they had lived with it, they knew it was nothing that worthwhile. Uh, but they said the only the, how how it differed from Americans. Americans believe everything the government tells them. Well, maybe so, but I don't believe that's true of our audience. And I think the shift is coming because look how many people went into uh, in, in, into the lockdowns and that COVID nonsense. It still lingers, and they still use the tools of authoritarianism to do that. So it it is there. And uh, of course, what we'd like to emphasize is that be cautious when you when it comes to working with the government because a lot of people lie. And so far, even with the encroachment on our First Amendments, there's still a lot of opportunity to spread our message. And I am a firm believer that in any message, in any idea whose time has come, the armies cannot stop those ideas. A lot of pain and suffering sometimes until we get rid of it. And we have to do it. But bad ideas, you know, can't last. Good example is the Soviet system. It finally crumbled. And it crumbled from within. That was when, the, when, the, when we heard the statistic way back. The people in Russia don't believe a thing their government is telling them. And then all of a sudden you had Gorbachev come along and say, Let's close the doors, you know. But then it gets started up in a new area because there's a natural tendency. Good and evil is always working. But there's, uh, if, if you wanted to live in a better world, you have to recognize that and put your effort dealing with the ideas of liberty. Well, it's been almost a week since, or has it been a week, since this <coughs> manufactured panic over balloons, a cascade of balloons <laughs> over our territory. We had to shoot them down, as you point out. The only complaint in Congress and in the media is, why didn't you shoot it down quicker? Uh, of course, all of this panic happened coincidentally, I'm sure, right at the time Seymour Hersh's article, blockbuster article, showing how the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipelines yeah. to detract all the attention. And now that successfully, along with the media, uh, they, have, they have been successful in detracting and distracting the attention from that, then they come out and say, well... It really wasn't what we say. Let's put on this first clip. This is from Politico, I think, this morning. Here's John Kirby, spokesman for the National Security Council. Says, objects shot down aren't from China and are likely benign. Now you tell us. Let's do the next one. Here's a couple of quotes from the article. We don't see anything that points right now to being part of China's spy balloon program. It's unlikely the objects were used in intelligence collection against the United States of any kind. That's the indication now. <coughs> intelligence officials believe the objects which were shot down a week after the Chinese spy balloon was down off the coast of South Carolina could be tied to some commercial or benign purpose. In other words, Dr. Paul, they were weather balloons. The U.S. spent how many <coughs> millions of dollars to shoot them down, to shoot first and ask questions later? 
it's it's phenomenal to see this level. You would say maybe it's a level of incompetence, but I do think there's some more nefarious <laughs> purpose. Look at the readiness to go to war with China over this. Remember, and this is all just barely below the surface. This hostility, this weird sense that Americans have that we need to go to war. It also shows the foolishness and dangerousness of believing your own hype, of believing the propaganda about China, and being ready to go to war, uh, even if what's happened is not anywhere near what they're saying. Bad ideas like Marxism, like fascism, they're like viruses. You know, you think you defeat them, but then they mutate, and then you have to defeat them again. And that's how it's going to be in our lives, in your lives of yours. You know, whatever we push back for a while, we'll be back under a different name, but it'll be the same thing, uh, you know, with a different rapper. I wanted to address um, the fake rights. You know, we see rights for this, rights for that. I mean, this is very basic stuff. You can't have a right, you know, to scarce things or to scarce services, people's labor. I mean, you, you have a right to air, to breathe, because without it, you're not going to live. But you don't have a right to conditioned air, air conditioning, or heated air, because these require, you know, savings, investment, capital, labor. So you don't have a right. But people will say, well, you don't want people to have uh, uh, air conditioning? What kind of person are you? you? Everyone has a right to air conditioning. No, no, you do not. You don't have a right to uh, another person's labor. There's a word for that, you know, for people who believe that they have a right to someone else's labor. You do, however, have a right to exchange. You can exchange an object for another object or your labor for another person's labor. You know, that's, uh, that's how society thrives and grows, through voluntary exchange. But look how far we've drifted to people that they believe they have a right to whatever they desire. You know, as long as a bunch of other people want it, too, and they could get a majority or whatever. So, you know, we have to get back to basics of just voluntary exchange, and you can't have the right to another person's labor. So let me start off with what Dr. Paul had to say. And before I even talk about it, I'm going to read something that Vladimir Putin recently said about the United States. I'm going to be quoting Vladimir Putin directly. That does not mean I'm a tool of Putin. It means I'm telling you what the man said, and then we're going to analyze it against what Dr. Ron Paul just said. Putin said, what is the problem with empire? They think that they are so powerful that they can afford mistakes here and there. No worries. These guys, we will buy off. These we will scare. Those we will come to an agreement with. These ones, we will buy them beads. Those over there, we will threaten with our navy, and it will be all right. But these issues accumulate until eventually they become unsolvable. The U.S. is confidently striding in the same direction as the Soviet Union. And that's the end of the quote. And I will preface it by saying he started out, it was a fairly long statement, about a minute long, and I only gave you maybe half of it, that he said that he was speaking as a former citizen of the Soviet Union, having watched his own country lose its empire. Uh, do you see the similarities with Dr. Paul saying, no one in the Soviet Union trusted the government, and no one trusts the United States government anymore because we lie so much, we compulsively lie. But do you see the other side of it? Do you not understand that this constant quest for more control and influence in the world, this constant quest for empire, it results in spreading out the resources that should be being used domestically to better our own nation to try to control other nations? 
And this is how every empire dissolves. We just did a great podcast with C.J. Kilmer last week on this. This is exactly what we were talking about. C.J. recently said some, something on Twitter I found interesting. He basically said, unfortunately for the United States, as we come to the end of our empire, our leaders are more evil and more incompetent than Mikhail Gorbachev was, along with his contemporaries when the Soviet Union fell apart. And if you heard that show, you know where he's going. But, of course, somebody popped up and said, well... What about you know throwing gays in prison and all the evil stuff that the Soviet Union did? Well, evil has many manifestations, is my response to that. But what CJ was speaking about there wasn't the totality of the existence of the Soviet Union from the time it came together till the time it fell apart over all those years. He wasn't necessarily talking about Khrushchev or Stalin. He was talking about the leadership at the time of the demise of the empire being wise enough and lacking enough evil to not try to hold the empire together through force and warfare and launching nuclear bombs at their own satellite republics without going to war. What he was issuing is the concern that if this empire crumbles, our leaders will not be so benevolent. Our leaders will use any means of force to hold the empire together because it's God's freaking will. There is so much right in all this that I don't want to be I don't want it to be right. But it is. We are at the end of an empire. I'm going to cover the train derailments on Monday. Some of that. And, and tell you why both sides are just full of shit in all this. But what the real problem is, is this is what a crumbling empire looks like. A crumbling empire always has, going along with its crumbling of empire, crumbling of its domestic infrastructure, which it can't afford to maintain because it's too busy Bluntly, fucking around in places it has no business fucking around. This is America today. We're a crumbling empire on its last legs. And crumbling empires, one thing about them, they're exceedingly dangerous. Because they always crumble when? At the height of bureaucracy and the height of their actual power. When they have passed the most laws, given themselves the most powers, made the most excuses for violating whatever form of constitution they have. That's when an empire crumbles. And it's a dying beast made up of incompetent morons who are more concerned about controlling and having their power base maintained than fixing the problems that you have. And I'm telling you, the more I read ancient history, the more I see the exact same pattern. It happened in Rome. Everybody brings that one up. It happened multiple times in the Asian empires. It happened right here in the Americas before anybody from Europe set foot here post 1492 anyway over and over and over again this is what humans do when they build giant civilizations that extend into empire it's always what happens the people who inherit what was done by those who came before them see it as some form of manifest destiny that they just will always be this way and when it starts to fall apart instead of fixing the problems Instead of seeing to business of their own people, they meddle throughout the world until the problems become unsolvable. That's what we're doing. And let's just hope CJ and I are wrong. And if this empire crumbles, when it does, whoever's in charge at the time has the decency to let people go freely and pursue their own ends. But I don't foresee that being the case. Moving on, let's talk about Something a little more currently practical, uh, investing, uh, 529 plans, and some other stuff with John Pugliano. 
Well, hello, TSP. We've got a couple financial questions. They're pretty much all about savings. First one comes from Brian in North Texas. And he says, where should I park my cash in an IRA? He's currently in his cash and sweep fund. And he hears that there's some money market funds that pay close to CD rates. Well, absolutely, Brian. That's what I've been talking about. And it's one of the reasons for over the past, I don't know, close to probably four more months now, I've been really leery of the stock market in comparison to what you can get in a risk-free money market fund. If you look at the yield that's likely generated from estimated corporate profits, which keep going down, and you compare that to what you can get in these money market funds, which are totally liquid and don't charge any transaction fees, then I think that the risk-reward ratio is just not there to be dominantly in stocks. Now, in terms of your question, you mentioned that your IRA is at Chase Bank. I'm not sure what they offer. You can either check their website or ask them specifically, what is their cash-equivalent money market fund? That's the key phrase, cash-equivalent money market fund, and they likely have several of them. I personally use Charles Schwab as my discount broker. They have a number of these cash-equivalent money market funds. For right now, my two favorites are SWVXX and SNAXX. And these interest rates are continuing to go up every time the Federal Reserve raises rates. So as far as SWVXX, there's no minimum investments involved with that, and it's currently yielding 4.48%. Now the other fund, the SNAXX, it's paying an even higher rate, is paying 4.63%. But the reason it's paying a higher rate is that the minimum to get into that fund is a million dollars. Chase probably has something that's equivalent. If they don't, you know, it's very easy to switch over to Charles Schwab or somebody else. Okay, the next question comes from Paul, and he's asking about recent changes to the 529 plan. He says he has a co-worker that's depositing money in the 529 one week and then taking it out the next week and using it to pay for college bills. And he's asking, is that a way to basically pay for college in a tax-free manner? Well, Paul, there have been some changes to the 529 plan, but to the best of my knowledge, they don't involve anything about what you're talking about. Let me kind of step through this for a second. 529 plans work much like Roth IRAs, where you don't receive a tax deduction for them. The money goes in there without any tax advantage to you initially, and the tax advantage occurs as the money grows through capital gains. So in the example you described, it really doesn't make any sense how there'd be any tax advantages because it's going in one week and coming out the next. It hasn't had a chance to make any capital gains. Now, what you may be thinking about, and this is different from state to state, but some states do allow for a tax deduction when you contribute funds into the 529. From your email, it looks like you live in Vermont, and Vermont is one of those states that do offer, I think it's a 10% tax credit for contributions to the 529 plan. Uh, but again, I don't see any new legislation there that mentions anything about any changes that have recently taken effect in the 529 plan. And so in the case of what your friend was telling you, where you can put the money in, leave it there for a week and take it out, whether they passed any new laws or not, I think it would have always qualified for that deduction on state income tax. And, you know, my dislike for 529 plans is an absolute. You know, I always tell people, look at your particular situation. And, you know, in your case, if you live in Vermont and you can use it for a tax deduction, that's fine. I just really don't like the fact that you have to use it for some type of education. It has always been a turnoff for me. But having said that, 
there is a new federal rule that comes into effect in 2024. And that ruling will allow any balance left over in a 529 to be rolled over into the beneficiary's Roth IRA. So from that aspect of it, I do think that's an improvement. But I do think there's just so many other ways to save for college that a 529 would still be my last choice. And even with what I described to you, I'm going to be running out of time here, so I don't have the ability to go into all the details of this new law. But there are limitations. It can only be a max of $35,000 that can be rolled over. And then there's minimum amounts each year that can happen. So, you know, it's going to take you five or more years to roll that balance into the Roth. And specifically in your example about putting the money in and then immediately taking it out, that's not an option with this new ruling. The 529 plan itself has to be open for at least 15 years, and the money can't be rolled into a Roth for at least five years. And I think there's still some question as to if you would change beneficiaries. For example, if you change the beneficiary from your son to your daughter or something like that, if that resets the whole clock, and it's all so convoluted and mind-boggling. Bottom line, again, I just think there's so many better ways to save. And just as a quick example, everything you can do with a 529, you can do with your own personal retirement program. And what I mean by that is that money that you contribute to your either individual Roth or your IRA or your 401k, any of that money can be potentially withdrawn penalty-free to pay for qualified education for your children. So I always advise people to look at funding their own retirement first and make sure you're maxing out all those options because the money's fungible and essentially you can use your retirement plan as a 529 if you need it. The other thing, and this goes to this new law where they're going to allow you to take excesses from the 529 and roll it into a Roth IRA. Well, I advise people that, you know, your young kids, they should be working as teenagers and earning some money, even if it's just a small amount. They can be putting that into their Roth where it can grow tax-free, and then they can always choose later on to use it for college expenses or for a down payment on a first home or just long-term retirement savings, or any of the other advantages that you would do a Roth IRA to begin with anyways. And for them to be able to make that contribution, they just have to have income. Now remember, money's fungible. So even if they're earning the money and spending it on something else, as a parent, you could always gift them enough money for them to make the Roth contribution as long as they made enough qualify for the contribution to begin with. Does that make sense? Well, hey, I'm out of time. As always, thanks for the questions. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. So just in, in doing what I do here for almost 15 years, 15 years this June it'll be, I have had this type of thing happen over and over in a variety of subjects. John or I or one of the other experts or a guest will say, this is a, 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 the rule, right? And then somebody will write in with the exception to the rule. Sometimes the exception is valid, and sometimes the exception isn't. In general, the exception is valid to a very specific use case, and that's why we have a general rule for the way to look at things. And I always say, if you can actually figure out how to make the exception work for you, God bless you. But in general, it won't. In general, it's like getting a credit card with rewards to get the rewards, but then you end up carrying a balance, and the interest rate on the rewards exceeds the rewards. And most of the time, that happens. I've heard several cases of how people end up spending less to pay for college 
that they were going to pay for anyway by utilizing certain ways of configuring these 529s. Other states, for instance, have a certain amount of matching. So if you put in X, they put in Y to your 529 plan. And so you're maybe instead of getting a tax deduction, you're actually getting more money, and you can immediately withdraw it to cover the expenses of higher education. Okay, exception to the rule. But when we give you the rule, what we're talking about is the best advice for the most people under general circumstances. And I will reiterate that I find 529 plans, as they are used 99% of the time, to be the devil. Because they're generally set up when children are very young, and I don't care what you think, you don't know that your kid is right for the type of education that the 529 funds will qualify for, and the interest on the money in the first place is not that significant over the time that the money is saved for a child to go to school to warrant locking up the funds in a way where they can't be reappropriated for other things. There's a variety of ways to defer or eliminate taxation on savings and investment and growth. But there's probably not huge amount of growth of the funds anyway because you shouldn't be taking money that's designed for your child's future and going high risk with your investments. You should be very conservative with the investment in the first place. Just my thoughts. And so I still stick by, I don't care what vehicle you use, a Roth IRA is a vehicle, by the way, right? A conventional IRA is a vehicle. A 529 plan is a vehicle. Because you can hold multiple different types of assets within the vehicle. It's an investment vehicle that houses the investment. And it should always be designed as a life establishment fund if you're putting it away for your child's future. Your kid may turn out to be an asshole, to be blunt. I know nobody wants to think that, but do you see assholes in the world? They're all somebody's kids, right? Your kid may actually turn out to be really great, but maybe not until he's 25, 26, 27, and by then he's gone out, found something, or she's gone out, found something, and wants to like start a business, and they actually begin to do it, and now the capital would really help them expand. And at that point, you've released the capital. I don't like losing control of the capital for a young person that I put away for the future, and I don't like somebody else telling me what they can do with it. That's why I always advise against this. But again, if you can break the, break the rule with an exception, just make sure you're actually doing it. Next up, Sean Mills. I'm waiting to hear this one. He wants Somebody wants to pump solar, pump water using solar energy a half a mile and has a pretty good reason for wanting to do it. I think I know what's going to happen here. Let's see. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com and today I have an expert panel question about pumping water with solar. So here's my question. Should I consider building a solar power array and insulated battery bank shed to pump well water approximately one half mile to a house located on the opposite end of a large piece of land? Details. I'm looking at a property located in central western Montana. The property owner hauls in water twice a week to top off approximately 16,000 gallons of underground cistern water tanks. And researching the option of drilling a well, it appears a deep well is not a good option due to the amount of hydrocarbon material trapped in the soil. Two adjacent properties have historical oil wells on them. The total deposit or the total potential amount of chemicals, gas, and deposit sediment make trying to drill a well near the house an impractical gamble. However, there is a year-round stream located on the north end of the property about half a mile away. Based on the large oxbow shape in the stream, the well driller believes a highly protective well can be drilled approximately 30 to 40 feet deep 
in a gravel bed near the edge of the existing stream. Running a 240-volt underground electrical line from the house, given voltage drop calculation and the cost of copper, over a half-mile distance makes powering the well pump from the house very expensive. I believe a more practical and cost-effective solution might be to construct a small insulated check with a battery bank in concert with a solar panel array. The location has excellent year-round southern exposure, and snow in this area tends to melt off very quickly. This would also build resilience into the property. I'm looking at a a 1.5 horsepower well pump. Using horsepower to amps calculation, I show that this circuit will draw approximately 5 amps. I would like to calculate the duty cycle capacity to be three times what I would expect. In this case, six hours per day or six amp hours at 240 volts per day. Sean, am I wasting my time thinking about this or is this something to consider? Uh, and this is from Jeff. So Jeff, I'm going to tell you, I don't love the idea of moving water a half mile in a Montana winter. I don't know how deep your trench is going to have to be, but it's going to have to be pretty deep. That's going to be a significant cost. Um, so if you and I were, were standing on your property, I would probably say, can we collect enough rainwater from the structure or could we build a new structure to collect rainwater off of uh, in conjunction with the existing structures to potentially collect enough to, um, to top these tanks off? Uh, and there, there are some pretty you know, detailed calculations you can do in a, in a given area based on the average monthly rainfall and your daily consumption to figure out exactly how much storage you need to never run out. But uh, that would be the thing that I would probably try to look at if we, if you and I were standing in, in your property in uh, Montana trying to figure out how we're going to do this without having to haul in water. Um, I think that I, I think that most of Montana gets pretty good rainfall, and I would imagine that there's already existing structures. I don't know, obviously, the height of the cistern. Is this buried? Is it above ground? Don't know how much head pressure we're talking about having to overcome, pumping it from the stream a half mile away to where the cistern is. Uh, but those are all things that we would need to consider. So let me add, answer your actual question. Uh, yes, this is very easy to do. Um, you are talking about five amps at 240 volts, about 1200, um, watts uh, when the pump is running, you probably need double, at least double that, uh, for the, for the kick on, uh, power surge, uh, at six hours. So call it, uh, 7,200, um, watt hours per day. And that means that in that area, that system would probably need something like 3,000 watts of solar. Uh, you would have way, way more than you needed for most of the year and, um, and just enough in the winter. Now, something to think about, instead of going with a one-and-a-half horsepower um, pump that's, that's 240 volt, you might consider something on the DC side, this direct drive, and something that has got a much lower draw. Uh, one and a half horsepower is typically something you put into a deep well. And I know that you got a lot of distance here, so maybe uh, you're trying to account for the elevation gain that you didn't put in your question. But, um, you know, those higher horsepower pumps, 
are meant for pressurizing um, a water column, you know, 200 feet below uh, grade and pr- taking it up to, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 PSI until your pressure switch kicks off. So it seems like that's probably a lot more pump than you actually need, especially if you're just going to kind of constantly during the day trickle this thing in to the um, to the cistern. You're not going to have a any sort of sensor. You're not going to have any sort of, um, you know, float valve because then you'd have to run that wire all the way out there. So this is kind of going to be kind of a, when it's on and pumping, it's putting water in the cistern and, and you're handling any overflow that you have. Uh, and you want to make sure you're not pumping out faster than the well can, can fill it back up. But it's not a tough thing, but that's a whole lot of work to do a half a mile away from the house, um, you know, for, for one thing. Uh, so again, for me, I think I would try to do something, uh, around collecting rainwater. And, um, and if you want to do some solar, do it right there next to the house. That way, if there's a problem, you don't have to take the four wheeler out a half mile, uh, and, and not be getting water while you're figuring it out. So, uh, that's my question for the day. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff, for seeing it in. Uh, I'm getting a few questions trickle in. You guys keep sending them and I will keep answering them. So that's pretty much what I thought would be said. There's a couple things to think about here, though. One is the location in Montana. Montana has places, you know, a significant part of the state have between 34 and 85 inches of precipitation a year. Other parts of the state have, let's say, from a bottom end of 8 inches to 16 inches, and with the bottom half of that being literal desert. So this matters. Like, are you in western or eastern Montana? The other thing that we have to consider in this is that a huge portion of the actual precipitation in Montana comes in the winter in the form of snow and then is melt-off. So you can only do so much with that, you know, during the winter. So that has to be put into consideration. But I kind of agree. I didn't price a half mile of pipe, but it would be fairly expensive. Now, if it's in the part of Montana that tends to have less rainfall, it's probably deep soil, and trenching it is probably the easiest part of the job because uh, a decent trencher that can be rented for a weekend would cut that trench like nothing and go three, four foot deep, and that's deep enough anywhere. I don't care what anybody says. Um, But it's still a lot of money overall, and if it was put into building some very large roof structure like a pole barn or something like that, that would catch enough water to make this work, then you don't just have water, you have the structure. So I think it's really important overall to consider like consider every option, look at the sum total of the cost of each option, and then rectify the cost against what do I get. If I get all the water I need, and I get a large contained structure that does other things for me versus a similar price giving me all the water I need, I'm going to take the structure. But that's just where I'm thinking with that. But it may not work. It all depends on, you know, kind of doing the math on all the different scenarios. And if you do have a question involves something like rain catch or water or something like that, it is a good idea to provide, especially to myself or the expert council member, like what your average rainfall is where you're at. Because if you live, you know, up in uh, north 
eastern Montana, I have a big difference of opinion on how valid rain catchment is rather than if you live over near somewhere uh, like you know, the, uh, the the foothills of the Bitterroots on, on the eastern side of the mountains. Like there, there's there's some real difference in that. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on clearing brush and maintaining it on remote property from Nick Ferguson. Nick Ferguson here from Homegrown Liberty with an answer for the expert council. Um, we have a few unrooted cuttings for sale on the store for those of you who missed out on the bare root trees. Also, a uh, little side note, my family is selling the family farm in southeast Ohio where I grew up with the barn I helped build, hayfields, pastures, four ponds, two year-round creeks, and it's 300-ish acres, I believe. So if you're interested in buying some land in southeast Ohio, shoot me an email and I can put you in contact with my uncle. Anyways, uh, on to the question from Sam, and he writes, Hi, Jack, Nick. Question, what are the best methods for invasive management on large remote property I don't live on? Uh, details, if this is more consulting than a show question, I get it. Maybe it could be both. Happy to pay for good advice. I have about 70 acres of very hilly remote property almost run over by brush honeysuckle. I don't live on the property, so livestock are not feasible. Not necessarily. Listening to the TSP show, I find out I found out about the NRCS programs and, to my surprise, was given a grant to do the project. The downside is the typical control includes a heavy application of herbicide the first year, followed by two years of medium and light applications. The property is all wooded with a young hardwood forest. One contractor can do it with mechanical removal for the first year, but it comes in at about three times what the grant was for, over 110000 The other plan, either spray mostly by hand or use a helicopter to apply to the more remote sections. It's still a significant cost, but less than mechanical. In my experience, I've needed to cut suckering plants like this twice a year or it comes back without using herbicide. This is a big, bigger project than what I normally have taken on. I've cleared and maintained several acres of forest, but not on this scale. I'm in a bit of a rock and a hard place. If I decline the project, I lose the grant, most likely with a penalty. Oof. More concerning, I lost about 30% of the canopy to emerald ash borer over the last few years. This created a cascade of honeysuckle growth that chokes out sapling hardwoods. So if I do nothing, the forest will likely decline. Yep. Causing heavy erosion. Yep. And choking out native species. On the flip side, I hate the idea of herbicide. However, I've made peace with it if it will get let the forest get ahead. The more mature areas seem to shade out the invasive understory. My big fear is doing significant collateral damage. I do get a lot of calories off the property between deer, mushrooms, berries, etc. If it helps, it is located in southeast Indiana. Happy to fill in any details. Sam. First off, uh, there are a lot more details I need if I was to give you solid advice. So take this all with a teaspoon of salt because I'm going on sparse information for something this important. I'll give you my brief gut response, and if you want to set up a consult, feel free to email me, and I'll try to fit you into the schedule. Um, I'll just try and give kind of the rapid-fire, broad-strokes set of options, and you can figure out what applies best to you and your goals, because I'm going to run out of time if I try and get detailed on this. Uh, really, the best ecological solution, in my opinion, is going to be perimeter fencing or at least sectioning off parts of it, either 
a complete total perimeter fence or fence off a quarter of it or fence off half of it, whatever is doable. I would use timeless T-posts, high tensile electric, unless you're talking about really, really undulating hills where high tensile would just be way too crazy tough. I kind of doubt it. Um, I'd have to see what you're dealing with, but that's that's my go-to fencing. High tensile electric, timeless T-posts with a grid-powered, not solar-powered fence energizer. I'm talking minimum 12-joule fence energizer. Most of the solar-powered ones are like 2 joules, if that, and that's not nearly enough. Preferably, I'd go with a, if you're, especially if you're doing the whole 70 acres, then I would do a 32-joule or higher. Uh, you could partition off part of the property, like I said, or you could do the whole perimeter. I would say 7 strands for the perimeter. It's going to give you a little bit more flexibility with sheep and goats, and it's going to uh, do a little bit better for canine pressure. I would set up a dog hopper feeder like Greg Judy uses and put two LGDs in there with a mixture of sheep and goats or just goats. Sheep can be a little bit stupid. Um, goats are a little bit better at the brush removal thing, but I like having a little bit of both in there. So you could go very goat heavy with just a couple sheep. I'd say a minimum of six goats, preferably a dozen to start. I mean, the more you have in there, the faster they're going to clear the land. This really just boils down to how much are you willing to invest and how quick do you want this to turn around. And I just let them go to town. You'd still need to worm them periodically because you're not um, not getting them off of that land and shifting them around. But you could literally fence it and leave them alone for as long as you have storage capacity in the dog food hoppers to keep them fed. I mean, you could seriously have four hopper feeders in one of those those uh, uh, sheep-proof dog feeders, and you could have like uh, 200 pounds of dog food in there, which would keep them fed for quite a while. I wouldn't hesitate to check on them every two weeks if and only if you actually follow the stinking advice on the fence and don't cut corners. That is one of the the major ways that people get into trouble with livestock like sheep and goats. And they say, you can't keep a goat in a fence. Well, no, it's just when they don't actually build good fences. So that is the most ecologically sound approach. And I think that would get you to your goal fastest, the end goal, with the least amount of long-term ecosystem degradation. I think that is the best. The easiest short-term is to use herbicides. The problem is, how are you going to manage the regrowth? I know you're going to kill the honeysuckle, but then something's going to grow up in the space instead, and it's not going to be just hardwood trees. There's going to be a whole bunch of other brush. So there's two options to managing all that regrowth, either mechanically or biologically with livestock. If you're doing mechanically, you need to get in there with uh, with some kind of tractor and bush hog or something like that. If you go with the livestock option, you'll need to fence and bring in livestock and guardian dogs, and we're back to option one, which is kind of why I lean towards that. If you're going to end up there, eventually you might as well just start out with that solution and cut out all of the, the middleman garbage. But it sounds like there's money on the line with the penalty. So I don't know the details on that, how much money we're talking about, so it might be worth your money to get a consult on this problem. I don't know. 
um, on the consulting thing. I'm actually working on that northern route tour for the end of June through the middle of July, and it looks like I might be going straight north from Louisiana, then uh, you know up to uh, Wisconsin and Michigan through Indiana, Kentucky, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and then back home. Uh, I'm also going to be headed through the hill country of Texas the last week of February. I'll be finishing up that short Texas tour in the DFW area at the end of this month. And that's the quick update on what all is going on with me. Head over to rareplantstore.com for fodder tree cuttings. We're almost sold out. And over to homegrownliberty.com for consulting info. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. That is an excellent answer given the situation. I guess the only thing that I would ask is would the grant allow for the use of the livestock as a removal medium? So even if it works, will the government let you keep the money if you use that mechanism? That's something that you have to talk to whoever your contact at NRCS is. And I think there's a lesson in this, too. And I had just somebody reach out to me from NRCS about possibly coming on the show and some of the programs and grants that are available. We talked about that a long time ago. We should probably talk about it again. But this is actually good fodder for that discussion in that how do I make sure before I apply for a grant that if I get the grant, I'm not going to end up having to give the grant back plus more money for giving back the money that I haven't spent. That's typical shit from government. You have to be very sure of all the parts of the deal before you make a deal with the devil, which I consider the state to be. It doesn't mean that I won't take their money because God knows over the years they have taken lots of my money from me. And some people say, you're not a real anarchist, you're, you're a liber- not a real libertarian if you'll take money from the government. I have always said, when the books balance to zero, I won't take any money from the government. But it will be a lot. My my great great grandchildren will never get back all the money from the government that they stole from me in my life. So I'm not worried about it. that's not going to happen anytime soon. It's like saying that you know putting biochar in the in the soil is a is a forever investment. It's not forever in the timeline of the earth, but in the timeline of a human life, it's way past forever. Which is how long it'll be before I ever balance the books with what they stole from me. So I'm all for getting your money back in any legal way that you can from them. Okay. Anyway, but I'm not for binding yourself to an agreement that will not benefit you in the end. That's a bad decision. Uh, I'm not sure what to do here, but I think Nick has put pointed you in the right direction. And getting some local consultation, I think, would be really important with the size of the value and the money that's involved here. Next up, let's hear, you know, we have heard about enough problems today. What about, what about listeria? What the hell is that? And what's it doing in your food? Doc Bones, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. We've talked a lot about sterilizing water to make it safe for drinking, but a few things in the news lately got me thinking about food safety, another responsibility for the family medic. The FDA announced on February 3rd that over 400 product items, including sandwiches, salads, snacks, yogurt, and wraps that were sold under various brand names have been recalled over potential contamination with the bacterium called Listeria. The products were sold by Baltimore-based Fresh Ideation Food Group between January 24th through January 30th and included breakfast muffins, croissants, wraps, and an array of fruits as well as noodle bowls and other items. According to the FDA's announcement, the recall products were distributed in Connecticut, the District of Columbia, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, hmm, 
Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Virginia. They were sold in retail locations, vending machines, and during travel with transportation providers. In other words, airlines and things like that. More info on all this can be found at foodsafety.gov, by the way. While this may be a relatively rare case of food contamination, outbreaks of bacteria found in food seem to be becoming more frequent. Besides highly publicized problems at restaurants like Chipotle, Safeway, Markets, Walmart, Trader Joe's, and Prepper favorite Costco, they have also been the targets of recalls in recent times. Listeria monocytogenes is a bacterium that hospitalizes 1,600 people a year in the U.S., with about 260 deaths on average. It's a member of the family of bacteria named after a founding father of modern sterile surgery, Joseph Lister. You can find his name on various types of surgical instruments as well, including a actually that we have in a lot of our kits. It also causes a relatively rare bacterial disease called listeriosis, a serious infection caused by eating food contaminated with the bacteria. The disease especially affects pregnant women, newborns, toddlers, adults with weakened immune systems, and the elderly. In these folks, deaths occur from sepsis and a nervous system infection called meningitis. A person with listeriosis usually has fever, muscle aches, diarrhea, and other intestinal symptoms. It all starts in the GI tract but frequently invades different organ systems varying from patient to patient. Pregnant women infected with listeria can expect a higher incidence of miscarriage, stillbirth, premature deliveries, and newborn infections. Others, such as the very young and very old, may experience things like confusion, stiff necks, loss of coordination and balance, and even seizures. Although there are some differences in opinion, the antibiotic ampicillin is generally thought to be a drug of choice, preferably IV. Other physicians consider penicillin to be an acceptable option, as well as sulfur drugs and genomycin in people that are allergic. So how do you prevent infections with listeria and really any bacteria that causes food poisoning? Food and Drug Administration has their opinions, and here are some of their recommendations. They want you to rinse raw produce, such as fruits and vegetables, thoroughly under running water before eating, cutting, or cooking. Even if you're peeling the produce, it still should be washed first. And that's because if you touch the peel and then the peeled fruit or vegetable, it could get contaminated with the bacteria. They want you to scrub firm produce, like melons and cucumbers, with a clean produce brush. And that's a handy item that few people actually have in their supplies. Then you want to dry the produce with a clean cloth or paper towel. You should always, by the way, separate uncooked meats and poultry from vegetables, cooked foods, and ready-to-eat foods if at all possible. The FDA recommends that you wash your hands and any knives, countertops, and cutting boards before handling and preparing uncooked foods. By the way, Listeria monocytogenes can grow in food stored in a refrigerator, so you want to have an appliance thermometer to check the temperature inside your fridge if it doesn't have one already. The refrigerator should be at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or lower, the freezer at 0 degrees Fahrenheit or lower. You want to clean up all spills in your refrigerator right away, especially juices from hot dogs, lunch meat packages, raw meat, and raw poultry. You want to also clean the inside walls and shelves of your refrigerator with hot water and liquid soap on a regular basis, then rinse them out. Now, without thoroughly cooking meats, you put yourself at risk for infection. You should be sure that all food is cooked evenly throughout. It's thought that Ebola may have started in West Africa back in 2014 from partially cooked bat meat. Each type of meat has its own recommended temperature to eliminate disease-causing organisms called pathogens. Here are safe temperatures for certain types of foods. Beef, veal, goat, lamb, and bison, and especially those that are in steak, roast, and chops, those are 145 degrees Fahrenheit. That's their internal temperature they should, they should be at. 
with a rest time of three minutes. Now rest time is leaving the meat out before cutting it. And now when you take your roast, for example, out of the oven, the moisture that's still inside needs some time to redistribute back through the meat. If you cut it immediately, the juices run out, leaving the meat dry. By letting it rest, the moisture is reabsorbed. Another reason to give about three minutes rest time is that you want, let's say, a large piece of meat to actually continue to cook for a few minutes after you take it out of the oven. might kill the last few bacteria. Okay, so most red meats, beef, bison, veal, goat, and lamb, 145 degrees Fahrenheit, rest time three minutes. That's if they're in the form of chops or roasts or steaks. If they're ground meat or sausage, they should be cooked up to an internal temperature of 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, chicken, turkey, and other poultry, breasts, legs, thighs, wings, ground poultry, giblets, sausage, stuffing inside poultry should all be cooked at 165 degrees. Ham should be cooked to 145 degrees with a rest time of three minutes. Pork in the form of steaks, roasts, or chops, 145 degrees with a rest time of three minutes. Ground meat and sausage made of pork, 160 degrees. Rabbit or venison, 160 degrees also. Fish. Uh, such as salmon, tuna, tilapia, bass, cod, catfish, trout, things like that, 145 degrees, or you cook it until the flesh is no longer translucent and it separates easily with a fork. Shrimp, lobster, crab, and scallops, those kind of seafoods, cook them until the flesh is pearly white and opaque. Clams, oysters, and mussels, you should cook them until the shells open during the cooking process. You might wonder how long meats are safe to eat even if stored in the refrigerator. The USDA has firm opinions on this as well. Use pre-cooked or ready-to-eat food as soon as you can. Don't store the product in the refrigerator beyond the use-by date to have the best chance of avoiding food contamination. Follow USDA refrigerator storage time guidelines, which might surprise you, by the way. For hot dogs, for example, you store the open package no longer than one week and unopened package no longer than two weeks in the refrigerator. Luncheon and deli meats, you want to store factory-sealed unopened packages no longer than two weeks. Store open packages and meats sliced at a local deli no longer than three to five days in the refrigerator. Now how about leftovers? The FDA suggests dividing your leftovers into shallow containers to promote rapid even cooling. You want to cover with airtight lids or enclose in plastic wrap or aluminum foil. You want to use them within three to four days. In a survival scenario, it's going to be very difficult to avoid bacterial contamination unless you really monitor food preparation practices. In normal times, it's easier, but only if you pay attention to good food hygiene. This is Joe Almendi, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks. All right, next up, what I think is just a fantastic subject from Amy Dingman at A Farmish Kind of Life on working with teens and goal setting. Hey everybody, I am back. This is Amy Dingman with the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and I'm here today to talk about setting goals with your kids or your teens. This is actually something we started when my kids were teens and I wish we would have figured it out way before they were teens. But sometimes when we talk about goal setting with our kids or teaching our kids about setting goals, we want to make it really complicated or we want to make it something that's like way out there in the future. As my kids were getting older, they were they were diving into their own things, exploring their own interests, and I started to wonder how we could use their interests to start them on the path about being more intentional with setting goals. And I think it's really important to keep goal setting low-key, relate it to real life, make it awesome. So how do we do that? What we did is it, it just started out as a simple conversation. I asked the boys, what are you working on in your free time? 
And what are some goals you want to accomplish with those things? And you guys, that seems really simple, right? It is simple. But so many times we don't ask. Parents don't ask. We think about goals as relating to the distant future or a college or career planning. We don't think to have kids relate goals to the things they are doing right now. Goals are how we get things done, right? So I asked my kids about what was going on, and they exploded with conversation about all these things they were doing in their free time, and I shared some of what was I was working on, too, and we all decided it would be a good idea to write down our goals and post them in a place where everyone in the family could see what everyone was working on, and then we decided we'd check on each other's progress throughout the week, and I wasn't really sure if this was going to turn into a thing. I kind of thought it was going to die out, but you guys, it didn't die out. We did this for a really long time. It became the thing we did on Monday morning. My sons and I would grab some coffee. We'd settle into a comfy spot on the couch, and we would chill out, and we would just chat about the goals that we'd set for the last week and where we got with that, and then we'd set new goals for the week, and we'd write them down, and we'd post them on the whiteboard in our dining room where everyone could see our goals and could check on us about what we were doing. So why do I think this method works? Number one, kids get to talk about what they like, and you might not understand a word of what they're talking about, right? Because like Minecraft or Pokemon Go or like all the things my kids used to be into, I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but they sure love to tell you about it. So when your kids start talking about the things they like to do and what they're into and how they're going to make that happen, they love to tell you about that. Another thing is it helps parents know what's going on. If you think your kid is just sitting at the computer all day, maybe they're not just sitting at the computer all day screwing around. Maybe they're actually sitting at that computer working on a certain something that you don't understand. And you're going to know these things if you ask your kids about them. Open up that conversation. Another reason this is really cool is it helps kids know more about their parents. Kids aren't generally all that concerned about how you're spending your time. All they know is you're busy doing stuff. <laughs> what my boys learned from this whole setting goals thing was there were a lot of things on my goal list that they actually knew more about than I did, and they could offer help to me, especially if it's anything having to do t with technology. They suggested so many things to me that made my goals easier to reach. And I would have been miles behind if I wouldn't have let them in on some of the things that I wanted to personally accomplish. Another great thing about this, this goal-setting method is it creates points of conversation. When we started our little Monday morning chat sessions about setting goals, do you know how many times one of my sons would say, So, Mom, how's it going with your whatever I had talked about? Do you know how nice it was for me to be able to turn to my sons and say, hey, did you did you ever find that site that had the guitar tablature that you were looking for? How is the coding going on that new game that you're trying to build? It created points of conversation for everyone. Another great thing is it helps you know how to help each other. You might be watching TV or scrolling Facebook and you see an ad and you're like, I know who would really benefit from that. I know my kid is looking for something like that. And now I know to tell him about it. My sons have also heard about things that I'm wanting to improve or learn about or add to my life. And then they'd say, hey, you know what I saw in this book or movie or website? That might help you, mom. Another reason that we found this method to be so helpful was it helped to define specific and attainable when it, when it came to goals. When we first started talking about setting goals, my sons would make re really broad goals like learn YouTube stuff <laughs> or play guitar better. That, that's not 
that's a goal, but it's not a specific goal. You don't really know when you've reached that goal, right? So we spent some time talking about the broadness of those goals. And now it's hard to figure out if you've met them, if there's nothing specific to point to. So we worked on making those goals specific, like upload two gameplay videos and update the information on my homepage or look up the music for this certain theme song and try to master the first 16 measures of it on the guitar. Those are specific goals. We also worked hard on setting attainable goals. That means looking at what else you have going on and what materials you have available to you during the week. Because we want the goal to be something to work for, but not something that's so out of reach for that week that you're setting yourself up to fail, right? Setting goals is kind of a time management tool. You have to, when you set a goal, you have to use your time wisely to be able to reach that goal. So how do you arrange the free time that you have so you can meet the goals that you set? And when things come up, because life happens and things always come up, how do you need to reconfigure your time to still meet those goals? The other side effect of this goal setting conversation is it makes you accountable. It helps your kids be accountable, but believe me when I say that it really helps you to be inspired to get your stuff done, mom or dad. There is something really refreshing about showing up to our Monday morning chill out sessions and knowing that you can say you met a lot of your goals. Because there have been plenty of times I wanted to let a goal slip by because I was feeling lazy, but I knew my sons were going to hound me about why I hadn't accomplished it. And if, if my sons happen to pop into my office and they catch me chatting on Discord or Telegram, they're going to ask me, hey, mom, how are those goals coming along? And they should. Setting goals with teens or kids doesn't have to be complicated, but it does work best when it relates to things they're already interested in, things they already want to do. So help your kids succeed in setting goals by keeping it low key and relating it to things they're already doing. And don't forget to have some transparency and let your kids know about your goals too, because a family that sets goals together can help each other meet them. Those are my thoughts for today. Send more questions for me to Jack about homeschooling, parenting, or family life, and find me at my podcast and website, A Farmish Kind of Life. And hey, I'd love it if you would head over to Amazon and check out my Homeschool Highway series. These are my honest thoughts about our 15 years as a homeschooling family. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly, because I know you would expect nothing less from me. Thank you for listening, and have an awesome day, you guys. Folks, I think it was one of the most insightful segments ever done by an expert council member in the entire history of the expert council in the Survival Podcast. I, I think it's so much beyond goal setting. I think this is about building stronger family relationships, and I wonder, there seems to be an overlap here with something Nicole Sauce has been doing, My Three Things. My Three Things is part of her community where people will simply state in the morning, I, they're very short-term girls, the three things that I'm going to do today are and sometimes it's one thing if one's really, really, really important, right? And I, I think that it's really important to start thinking about goal setting in, in, in a, a temporal way. You should have goals every day. You should have goals every week. You should have goals every month. And you should have long-term goals as well. And the way that you get to a long-term goal, like a goal that's like five-year goal, is by consistently hitting your goals in the short term so that they add up to the long-term eventual goal and finding the continuity between them. Are the things I'm doing today consistent with my goals five years from now? So that's great on the goal setting. But, you know, what Nicole's doing with the three things is that you're announcing it to your community that's kind of holding you accountable, but at the other side going, hey, I just heard about a thing that might help him. 
And then doing that in your own family, that makes a lot of sense. A ton of sense. What I see here is a way to build stronger family that's more informed about what's going on in each other's lives. Because there's a beautiful and an ugly thing that happens in parenting. It's beautiful and it's ugly at the same time. And this is why this is why young mothers when a kid goes to kindergarten acts like the kid just left for college. Because in their hearts they know how quickly this process will occur. Our children grow, they become independent, they become self-sufficient, self-reliant and capable. And a window begins to close on where we go from knowing everything from the time they took a dump because we had to change their diaper to knowing almost nothing. And this is a way to keep that window open about the things that are most relevant and important in all of our lives. So this is not just getting the kid to set goals. It's getting mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle, whoever, to participate in this. Because what happens is a kid comes home, what'd you do today? Nothing. What'd you learn today? Nothing. No, and you force them to tell you something, and they tell you whatever they think you want to hear, and then you know you tell them what you think they want to hear, and then that's just how family life tends to go. But if you actually know what's important to each other, then one thing people always find interesting is you talking to them about what they feel is important to them right now. This is a fantastic segment. Um, I don't know, maybe we need like a monthly award for expert counsel segments, maybe a People's Choice Award or something like that on a monthly... i, I got to put my head around how to do that. Maybe that's one of my short-term goals. So let's go on with my segment for today. Uh, this comes from David. Uh, and David says, For Jack himself, unless there's a better choice, I'm considering buying undeveloped land in West Texas with the intention of putting in some swales in the first years, planting some select seeds the following year, and then leaving the property unattended for a few years. What regions should I be looking and what types of true siege, tree siege should I consider for the project? Greater details, this is a dual-purpose physical investment. Ideally, I do this and my wife and I could simply gift the property to our heirs more valuable than we found it, but I suspect the breakup of the United States may be coming in the next decade. If so, I want a real property connection to Texas and New Hampshire due to New Hampshire's high property taxes. Texas looks better near-term choice. Your thoughts and ideas are welcome. Uh, okay, so here's my thing about this. Almost everybody that says this has never been to West Texas and looked at what you're buying. You go online and you look at these advertisements for land out in West Texas, and they show you the very best cherry-picked locations and some big axis deer or something like that. There's a lot of beauty in the Texas uh, desert, but it is one of the harshest environments there is. The people that live there, they either end up going there doing their best, getting fed up with it, and bailing out, or they tough it out and they end up falling in love with it. And that's generally what I've seen from people trying to make a go of it out there. I have not seen anybody successfully do this remotely. There was a guy recently, somebody sent me a YouTube video, and that's what he was going to do. And, and there's a couple things that I want to talk about here. One, here's an example of not really getting the design element of permaculture that is a swale. I want to put in swales in the first years, planting some select seeds the following year. That's exactly how not to manage a swale-based system. When you, when you put a swale in, for those that aren't familiar with the term, maybe you're new to the show, 
A swale is simply a ditch on contour that's designed when it rains, it collects all the water and seeps it into the ground. It's not designed to hold water, it's designed to infiltrate water. We pull the earth out of the ditch, and this is a, there's a specific way to do it. I can't get into an audio right now today, keep the show length reasonable, but it's kind of a shallow, wide catchment. And we take all the earth and we pull it out of the ditch and we put it on the downgrade side. So when the water builds up, it infiltrates into the soil and plumes up into the mound. When we make that swale, when we make that swale, that earth is decompacted. It is soft. It is easy to plant into. We want cover crop and whatever, like base tree crop and everything that we want in it, we want it in it now. The second that it's done, we don't want to wait. We don't want the earth to settle and recompact. We want to get root mass into it as quickly as possible. We want to overplant it with trees. And I guess the good thing about the place you're going would be almost all the trees that you would plant to walk away from, while they're thorny and, and can be quite painful, uh, they can be somewhat productive, they do provide a lot of shade, and they are all going to be nitrogen-fixing pioneers. So generally what happens is people don't put enough nitrogen fixers in, not enough support pioneering species in. In this case, you're looking at things like mesquites. Like that would be your primary tree in that climate that would be able to grow. If you were going to make it work... You'd have to find land that lays the right way where you could fully harvest all of the water and you're going to want to move the water not just into the ground, you're going to want to move the water into to ponds that are as deep as possible, which means you're looking for the, the, the land that has sufficient soil depth so you're not trying to do this with rock and sufficient clay. This is very difficult to procure in this particular area. I, I think that this is a romanticized idea because somebody looks online and goes, look, I can get 100 acres for $40,000. You, you would probably be better off getting 20 acres for $200,000 in East Texas. Because the first thing is, if I buy a piece of real estate, no matter what my long-term intentions are, I want to know I can sell it. So if I buy smart East Texas land or anywhere that's temperate climate, then I know with improvements I can make money on the property even if I bail earlier than I planned. If you buy that land in West Texas, the reason it's so cheap is because nobody wants to buy it, uh, as a general matter of course. Again, anybody that's out there listening over satellite internet on solar panel and you love the place, I'm not insulting it, and you know what I'm saying here. You know what I'm saying about folks moving out there and not being able to cut it even when they're there, let alone trying to grow stuff in the desert without being there with it. So in a lot of the places out there, too, like, well, I'll put a well in. No, you won't. You can't. You can't get deep enough to get to the water in a lot of these places. That's, what, that's part of the issue. You know, you're looking at rainfall in some of these places less than 10 inches a year. Rocky, arid, dry, beautifully harsh. So if you want to do it, you're looking at, Mesquite and other desert pioneering species as overstore. You're looking as much as you, as you can get. You're creating draws. You're creating ponds, hopefully, even temporary ponds, ponds that might dry up every year. But they're there for a time, and then they seep into the soil around them. That's the approach. If you're not going to be there, and, and so the other thing is don't discount the distances here. A lot of the places that you, you, you mean when you say West Texas, right, they're a 12-hour drive for me, and I live in Fort Worth. 
So if you live in the northeastern United States, this is a process, and there's no close... Like, your airport to fly into is like El Paso or San Antonio. This is not easy. Where, let's, let's, let's just flip to the other side of the state. Five acres, ten acres, fifteen acres in the East Texas woodlands where almost everything is sandy surface soil, but it then just not very far below there, it's red clay. You can put in ponds. If I'm going to do a remote property, I want to go in and I want to, I want to open up part of it. I want to put in several ponds. I want to stock those ponds. And, I, and if there's not good mast trees, I also want to open up some places to put in swales. I want to bring water into those ponds, and I'm, I'm going to design classic Jeff Lawton swales, Rain comes, swales catch water, huge increase in the catchment area, ponds fill up very, very quickly and are maintained, pond is completely fill, the water goes back up the swale and discharges in sills where I want it to, and I design that. And I go in, and it's Texas, and I'm planting like the cheapest seedling pecans that I can produce. Like pecan is an overstory. White oak is an overstory. That, that, that's my two primary overstory trees, and they will do fantastic in those soils and those types. Now I have mast, which means I have wildlife. I have pigs and deer in Texas. I've got ponds. I stock the ponds. If I can get here a few times a year, I can set up a massive feeding system that automatically feeds my fish. And I have ponds full of catfish. I have happy deer. And if I really, really hit... The, you know, the nail perfectly, maybe I find a property that has a creek bordering it or a creek in through the, bifurcating it. And now I can do things along that creek to improve the situation. I've always got water. And if I want to put in a well here, even where I live in Fort Worth, it is expensive. A well out there is a lot less expensive. Drilling through clay is a hell of a lot easier than drilling through freaking limestone. So I don't know if Texas is the right place for you, but I'm going to tell you if you want to do something remotely, I think most people that buy remote land in Texas in the West Texas side sooner or later end up regretting their decision. You, you own a piece of land that honestly you could probably go camp on, and unless somebody else did what you did and decided to settle there, no one would even know or care. A lot of the land that you see for sale, it doesn't even have road access to it. You get a GPS coordinate. You got to go find it. It's not even properly surveyed. There's a reason it's so stinking cheap, and that's again because it's not very marketable unless you put it on a fancy website like Lands of Texas. Get a bunch of pictures, and if you ever notice, if you start looking at these different offerings like that, you see the same pictures on 20 different listings. There's reason. There's reason. So I would look at an easier environment. Southeastern Texas, down around Conroe and Houston and all, but still far enough out that you're not paying city prices. Again, you've got a very temperate climate. You've got lots of streams. You've got piney woods. You've got easy-to-work soils. This, to me, I would rather spend twice the money for a quarter of the land in East Texas than West Texas. I've looked at it. I've always thought if I wanted to build some sort of encampment of libertarian principles... You know, where we could be left alone and do whatever we want. West Texas is about as good as it gets for freedom. No one cares what you do. But doing it, that's the hard part. And again, 
I've, I've watched tons of videos of people that moved out there and all their plans, and some of them make it and some of them don't. And the ones that do always point out, you don't know what you're biting off until you try it. So I just think your money is inv better invested in a an easier-to-work-with piece of land. And to me, if you're remote, you know, if you've got a deep pond, you've got fish forever. Forever. Just my thoughts. With that, we have wrapped up another week. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember there is one way that you can support this show and the work that we do without any direct out-of-pocket expense, and that's just when you're going to shop online anyway. Go to tspaz.com first and start your shopping there. No matter what you buy, you will help us out. But remember that I also do reviews at tspaz.com, and you can always find my item of the day just by going to the survivalpodcast.com. If, if it's not at the top of the stack, just start scrolling down, and within a, a post or two, you'll find it. Today's item of the day I brought to you about two weeks ago. <clears throat> I've gotten tremendous feedback about it. Everybody's been happy, so I thought let's bring it back again since it is a newer item. It is Chicago, South Chicago packing Wagyu beef tallow. Wagyu beef is like the most expensive beef in the world. It really is, and it has an amazing fat. And the fat in, in Wagyu beef, it almost starts to melt when you touch it at, at that low a temperature. It is just a fantastic flavor, and you can get a great big giant 42-ounce tub of it Uh, from South Chicago packing and start using when you're sauteing your vegetables, when you're frying things. You can use it. It's kind of a secret when you're doing brisket. You can look up more about that. You can sear it, and you can do what I finally did. You can put some of it in a little dish and throw it on your smoker, and you can smoke it, and you have smoked Wagyu beef tallow. And when you're finishing off your sous vide steaks, you slather a little bit of that on it, and you torch that steak, and you sear it with smoked Wagyu beef tallow, and you will be transported to another place of meat nirvana. This stuff is great. You can find it at tspaz.com or thesurvivalpodcast.com. And please remember, if you were on the Daily Mail, you would get a little email today and say, here's today's item of the day. It'd be that simple. Four or five bullet points. So go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. In the menu, you will see Daily Mail. Click it, fill out a form, and you're good. You'll get the Daily Mail. Uh, also, you can always help support us by becoming a member of the MSB. If you're not an MSB member yet, please consider becoming one. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and you can learn how to sign up there. And guys, it really does pay for itself. I don't know anybody who uses it even a few times a year that doesn't say, you know what, in the end, I made money by being a member. That's what I've tried to put together for you guys. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I'll be back Monday with a listener feedback show. If you want to be on that show, send me an email, jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. Make your point or ask your question, bottom line, up front style. One sentence should convey to me what you're asking or telling me about. If it's a news thing or whatever, then include a link. If it's just a question or you have any supporting material, include a link or images or whatever. Hit the return key a couple times. Give me the details you think that I need. But bottom line up front, that will get you more likely to make it through my screening process. I can't possibly put all the material sent to me on air, but I do read it all. And if you follow that formula, you're highly likely, I'd say more than 80% of people that follow that formula, get at least something back from me, some little piece of advice or something. I really try, even to this day, to read every email that I get. But 
Following that format makes it a hell of a lot easier on both of us. With that, has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way